On Before the Bestseller, we talk with our favorite authors about the books they wrote and the stories behind how those books made it big. I'm your host, Alex Straffy, and it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. In this episode, we are welcoming back on John Strelecki, who is actually our first return guest, and with good reason. His episode is one of our most popular episodes, and the man has also sold over 8 million copies of his books. Originally, we talked about a cafe on the edge of the world, and this time, John is back on to talk about the big five for life. So welcome back, John Strelecki. John, uh, this is such a pleasure to have you back on. You're our first repeat guest ever, and so I'm honored, Alex. Wow, how about that? I don't, you know, I don't even know where to begin because usually the first question I ask is, you know, childhood story that made you who you are today. But you've already given that uh, to us last time. So for any of those that are interested in that question, you'll have to go back and listen to John's last episode with us. I mean, that has been one of the most successful episodes of our show, uh, and so awesome. I am just over the moon excited to chat with you again about another one of your book, uh, another one of your books, the big five for life, which you, know, you have up on the screen there. So John, thanks for coming back on. Absolutely. And I was thinking Alex of another childhood moment. So if you'd like, I do have one to stay consistent with the theme of your show. Sure. When I was a little kid, my mom during the summertime, as soon as school ended, which is about this time of year, uh, my mom would take us to the library and we would come back with a stack, like 20 books. And I just remember reading for hours and hours and hours. Uh, and as soon as we got done with the 20, we'd head right back to the library and get 20 more. And that was a lot of my summer was either spent there or outside playing with my friends. But I think that one of the things that enables you to be a good storyteller is if you love stories. You know, if you're a good story reader, you're going to be a good storyteller. Yeah. Uh, what is it they say? I think there's a couple different, uh, not all, what is it? Not all readers are leaders, but all leaders are readers. Uh, hmm quotes out there and i guess that makes sense that you're such an avid reader um probably ties into probably helped you a lot too in your journey i, I could assume i mean i like stories i, I really do I, I write fiction primarily because i like the way a story catapults you to a different reality i remember being i know you're a traveler and a surfer and so you'll relate to this i remember traveling during my backpacking trip around the world when i was in my early 30s i was in china somewhere and i was reading gone with the wind and I was on a bus surrounded by people, uh, like in the middle of nowhere. And I remember being so immersed in the book and I sort of looked up for my book and I was more surprised that I wasn't in 1860 Atlanta than I was that I was in the middle of the desert in China. It was like such good writing, you know? And so I love the way that a good story can teleport you to another reality for as long as you want to stay there. And it's interesting how the written word does that in a way that seems so much more personal than like a movie or, or you know, just watching a TV show. It's kind of like your brain has to maybe work a little bit for it. So you're a little bit more involved in what's going on. I don't know. I yeah, you're a co-creator in the story when they just, you know, the, as artists, uh, writers, we describe something. But of course, we describe it and then the person's going to apply their own personal filter to it. Yeah. And so that you're right. It makes you a co-creator in the story. And so therefore, you've got a little more attachment to it. That makes sense. So I was going to, you know, instead of the childhood question, I did have another question to open you up. All with. right. Relevant to you is, are you having a museum day? <laughs> I am having a museum day because I get a chance to talk to you about Big Five for Life, which is a great museum day. All right. So why don't you kick us off? Who is Joe Pogrit? Yeah. So that's the main character, one of a couple of main characters in the book, The Big Five for Life. He is the protege of a man that we meet very early in the story. Uh, who is Thomas. Uh, Thomas is 55 years of age and he's Joe's mentor. And we learn right away that Thomas is dying. And over the 240 or so pages of the book, we come to really love Thomas and 
everything he stands for and the man he chooses to be and the way he chooses to lead and the lives that he's inspired. And then at the end of the book, he dies. And it is a very emotional aspect. It's a book about leadership, but it's also a book about life a lot. Like I know I've gotten feedback from readers saying, oh, I picked it up thinking it was about just leadership, but there's so much in it for me for my everyday life too. Um, but I remember probably one of my most fun memories of this book is I was brought in by the FBI to do some work uh, with their leadership teams. And you know, FBI people are just like, they're tough. Like this is what they do for a living. And they were telling me stories about the rest. And then at one point, one of them pulled me aside and he's like, you know, cried when I got to the end of that book. And I was like, well, I hope so. Cause that was the intention, <laughs> you know, but it was, it was neat to hear and see his, his physical reaction to it. Yeah. I, I, I definitely pulled some emotional strings for me as well, which you, it's always cool when you have sort of a, a you know, fable writer who is really writing about these fundamental concepts that can also pull the emotions, I guess, uh, at the end. Um, that's cool that you were doing that with the FBI. That would have been cool. I'm sure with then you talked a lot about, you know, the PPE or purpose or F PFE, I believe purpose for existing, which I, I remember from the cafe on the edge of the world too. So, you know, there's some crossover. Can you walk us through some of the big concepts? I know I started you off with the museum day question. Maybe you can, you know, elaborate on that too. Walk us through some of the big concepts in the book. Yeah, Museum Day is probably the first thing that Joe gets introduced to from Thomas. So there's some flashback scenes early in the story. And that is, and I know this is something we talked about in the previous interview. And so if someone wants the full version, they can listen to that. But the essence of it is very briefly, imagine if your entire life was recorded, everything you did, everything you said, all the places that you went. And towards the end of your life, a museum was built to honor you, except that museum shows your life exactly how you lived it. And imagine what it would be like to walk that museum. How would you feel? What would you see? And then the big aha moment associated with that, as Thomas is explaining it to Joe, is imagine if heaven or the afterlife actually consists of you being the tour guide for your own museum for all of eternity. And so not only will this be how you were remembered in everybody else's eyes, but this is the reality you're going to be dealing with and facing every single day for the rest of your life. And it impacts the character of Joe and it impacts readers who read the book because, wow, like what if that's true? I mean, theoretically, it could be true. But I think we all probably do a life review at the end. And, uh, you know, you want to ideally have a museum that's filled with lots of great moments. And so it can be a catapulting, motivating moment for people when they read the story. It's probably every book has a piece of the story that is the most quoted back to me. Museum Day is the piece that is most quoted back to me from the Big Five for Life. Yeah, uh, I can imagine. And so, you know, a lot of what you write about for for the Museum Day is that, you know, a leader kind of needs to be looking into making sure that they're they have a purpose for existing, right? What about for, you know, how does that connect to business? And so, you know, for me, it was actually kind of interesting because of I came from the cafe on the edge of the world first. So I was actually expecting another more, you know, just um, I guess it wasn't a leadership book, just a, a book focused on, you know, your, your own personal development. And then I opened it and I was like, wait, this is a leadership management book. So I was actually, it was funny, it was the flip for me. And so, you know, you write about kind of how a lot of these concepts should go into the heart of a business, right? So I guess, yeah, could you just elaborate on, obviously the title is The Big Five. Could you talk about what The Big Five is? Yeah, The, the Big Five, for, and also tell you, remind me, because I get sometimes distracted in my answers, but I, remind, I'll tell you why I chose to set it in the context of leadership too. Yeah. Uh, the Big Five for Life for the five things that you most want to do, see, or experience in your lifetime before you die. And they are the five things that are so powerful that if you do indeed do see or experience them, that on your deathbed, in the last few moments of your life, you can look back over your life and you can say, you know what, no matter what else I didn't, I did or didn't get to, I got to my big five for life. And therefore 
my life is a success by my personal definition of success. And that's a really key component of that because this isn't about your boss or your neighbor or your spouse or your parents. This is about you saying for yourself, what do I want in that museum? What would I be super excited to see every single day for all of eternity? And I don't know about you, Alex, but I went through a lot of schooling during the course of my life and never had anybody ask me, what's even one thing that you most want to do see your experience? So that at the end, you could actually be like, it was all a great big win, you know? And so this is a very simple and yet profound concept when I share it with people. And I think that's why it's because it's not something that we've, it's not something that's in our everyday conversation within our culture. So, and the reason I said it in the context of business, I reminded myself of the question, uh, is that I, when I wrote The Cafe on the Edge of the World, I was amazed to discover that people were handing it out in companies. As a matter of fact, I have a crazy story. And since I know you're so into the book world, this is one that'll make you laugh and you'll appreciate. It was actually banned by, I think it was the Department of Agriculture. And the reason it was banned is because the leader that was there had been handing it out to so many people and people were quitting and they were going and following their their purpose and going to do something else. And so they banned it. They wouldn't let it be distributed. And eventually he left, the guy that was, that was the head of it. And he went to go back and live on his ranch in Wyoming because he realized that was more in alignment with his purpose. And uh, so uh, that's kind of my crazy story as it relates to PFE. But what I realized as the book was being handed out, because I didn't think it would, you know, you've read The Cafe on the Edge of the World. It is very much a personal story about life. What I realized is that, you know, we spend 70% of our awake life either at work, getting to work or thinking about work Monday through Friday. And so if I wanted to inspire people, if I could inspire leaders who are then leading thousands of others, that would be my biggest chance to have a positive impact on a very, very large scale. And, and it's come true. So I'm very honored to say that it's worked. Yeah. And I agree with so many concepts in the book and, and how I run my own organization. But I was very surprised to, to see you go into the management space because correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, your, your background, uh, I know you're with a big consulting company for, for a bit. Maybe I'm missing some of the details of, uh, of some of the stuff you did for them, but you know, you don't, you didn't strike me as someone with an insane amount of background in management experience. And so, um, is that, is that true or is that, am I mistaken or, or is that true? No, actually my story is kind of crazy and I won't give you the, the whole 9,000 feet of it, but in essence, uh, I, my dream was to become a pilot. I was on that track. I invested every penny that I'd ever saved since I was 12 years old towards that dream. Then found out I had a heart condition that was very, very rare and only impacts you if you want to be a pilot or an astronaut. Well, lo and behold, I wanted to be a pilot. And I didn't find out until I was already 20 and already fully immersed into this pilot training program for at, at my university. Uh, but luckily, I had been an athlete my whole life and I was always, and I had gotten elbowed in the, uh, the top of my eye my freshman year. And I thought, you know, if that had been an inch lower, <laughs> that would have been the end of the aviation career. So maybe I should have a backup plan that I'm running simultaneously. And so I was getting my degree in business at the same time I was getting my degree in becoming a pilot. And, uh, I've always been an entrepreneur since I was 12 years old. I've always been involved in business forever. And so then when I found out I couldn't fly, uh, fast forward a couple of years, but I ended up getting my MBA from Northwestern University and immersing myself into the high profile consulting world. And so I did that for many, many years before I decided at the early, at the age of 32 to go travel and see the world. I was just impressed because to go after two somewhat, you know, somewhat related, but also separate markets takes a lot of confidence to to sort of put your hand up, especially with all of the leadership books out there and say, yes, I'm a leadership guy too. You know, here's my book. And then I even still at the end, you know, you've done consulting now with everyone from Boeing, I think, to um, uh, which is one of my 
favorite companies, although right now not not a great look, uh, to Audi. And uh, so it's just very impressive to, you know, it's not something a lot of authors, you know, if they, it, maybe if your background doesn't, isn't as strong as, I don't know, Maxwell leadership or, you know, one of those guys, what do you recommend for those authors, you know, who, who want to move into maybe writing a little, having a different angle to their, uh, their writing? You know, when I approached this book, I asked myself, I started with a simple question, which is what would it, what would a story look like if it told the story of the greatest leader in the world? And I began from that premise. I have had the very unpleasant experience of working for some really horrible leaders. So I knew what that felt like. I've also had the great pleasure of working with some amazing leaders. And so I thought that I could tell a story that would be the dichotomy of those two. And at the same time, embrace something which is almost never talked about in leadership books, which is mortality. And so sometimes people make the mistake of separating business and life. And as you just finished reading the book, you know, I reference time and time again through the dialogue, there is no separation. We are all in the business of life, not just in the business of business. And the leader who understands that, the leader who embraces that is the leader who has a tremendously successful organization or company or division or department, whatever the case is. Can you so, well, I was just going to say, so I approached it from that perspective and just used the life experiences that I had, plus my own intellectual capital in terms of, okay, if I was going to do this on my own, what would that world look like? Or what have I learned in my own leadership experiences? And honestly, Alex, it flowed in the same way that the cafe story flowed. Crazy enough, I was backpacking through China at the for 30 of the days that I was in the process of gathering the content for the book. So I had this tiny little black notebook with me and I carried it with me everywhere I went. And I would be scribbling notes. And then when I'd get back to my place where I was staying, I would furiously write up the notes and then email them to myself because I didn't want to lose that little notebook. Uh, but it's a very bizarre way to write a story. But nonetheless, it worked effectively. So there you go. While you're backpacking, you know, across China, uh, does the... So one of the things that, you know, obviously I loved about the book is, you know, for your employees, and this is probably where you kind of had to rewrite the story a little bit for the Department of Agriculture uh, people so it wouldn't become banned. And other organizations is like, no, 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 you can still have this within an organization. Doesn't mean you have to quit your job, right? Uh, and so for, you know, getting, connecting the purpose, you know, for example, my team, we love traveling. Um, you know, my my team this year, members have already been to Japan and South Korea and on uh, a bunch of different places in Asia. And, you know, one of the, whenever we have our quarterly check-ins, you know, I ask them, you know, like, what is personally, what are you trying to accomplish? Right. Um, but it's, it's very easy with the hundred other things that an entrepreneur or a leader has to do in their business. Uh, it's very hard to systematize and, and I'd say stay focused on that premise long-term and actually, you know, walk the walk instead of just talking talk. Right. So what are some, you know, quick systems or, or maybe not quick, but, but actually sustaining systems that entrepreneurs and leaders can build into their businesses where this is actually not just, you know, they, someone joins their company to say, yeah, we really focus on helping you, you know, achieve what you want to achieve. But then it's like one quarterly check-in uh, every few months to say, hey, how's that, you know, plan you had for, you know, buying a, a rental property or, or traveling to, you know, Antarctica going, right? Like how you actually systematize this into the business. Yeah, I'll give you examples of what leaders have done that have read the Big Five for Life and incorporated into their organizations. That's probably the most beneficial for anybody who's listening. And I will say, I 100% agree with what you're saying. The worst to me, and I've experienced this on the receiving end, and I've seen it in so many companies, they do an, an end of year. And so literally once a year, it is an evaluation. And I can't remember the name for it. There's different name in Europe and the United States, but it's, it's like a standard term across like HR companies, et cetera. And so the idea is that literally at the end of the year, 
Alex and I are going to sit down and you're going to ask me what are my life goals and et cetera, except that this is treated with so little value that it's like, how can I get this off my to-do list as quickly as possible? It's usually outsourced to me, right? The, the participant, it's like, oh, fill this out and then let me know. And then as soon as it's done, it's put into a drawer and never looked at again until 12 months later when it's time to do the next version. So this is useless and beyond useless. It's actually detrimental because it, like, let's say that I was a leader and I did that to you. How does that make you feel as a human being? I mean, I've, I've, I've asked you to do something that was pointless and I did nothing with it, which makes it feel like I just wasted your time. Thanks a lot. You know? And so I'll, I'll give you some examples of what people have done that are way better. So the first thing is if you've got an organization already or a department or division that to share the big five for life concept with your, your people, that can be in most cases, people just buy the book because it's cheap. It's $10 and they give a copy to everybody. And then they say, okay, let's talk about this. Like, what are your big five for life? And they get clarity about who this person is as a human being, not just what job function do they do. And then once they know the things that they're passionate about and interested in, then they can start to look at the roles and responsibilities that need to be done within the organization and say, oh, well, look at that. Like Jane over there is really passionate about um, doing graphics work. I had no idea about that, but we've got this whole aspect of what we do that involves graphics or photography or um, creative storytelling. And so why don't we bring Jane into that piece of the action? It sounds so simple and so logical, but it's like match up people's interests, passion, and desires with the work that needs to be done so that the company can be successful. That can only happen if you know what the, the passions, interests, and talents are of the people. And that comes from having this discussion about the big five for life. So once that's done, then you realign and everybody's got new roles and responsibilities and we all move forward. It's important to just check in and say, how are we doing? I can't tell you how many times in companies it happens where when you say to someone, oh, how did you get that job? Like, how did you get that function within your job? And they say, oh, well, when I joined, nobody was doing it and I was new, so they gave it to me. <laughs> and two and a half years later, I'm still doing it because nobody ever took it off my plate. It's not their main, it's not supposed to be their main function. It's not even what they're good at. They're certainly not passionate about it, but it just needed to be done, Like. That's a very effective way of having ineffective performance within the organization. So in conjunction with that, uh, another leader, this was in the telecom space, did something very creative. She said, okay, I now that I know all of your big five for life, what would make it special for you? Like what would bring it home for you? And they said, we'd really love to decorate our offices in spirit with our personal big five for life. She said, great, knock yourself out. So if you've ever walked through a cube world, it's relatively drab and boring, right? But in this office, they sent me pictures. It was pretty spectacular. They had one office was like Star Wars to the nth degree. Another guy was like huge into hockey. So he had hockey stuff all over his office. Every single person that worked there got to decorate their office in a unique way. Imagine when a, a potential client or a client walks through there, like you have character. Like it, it demonstrates that you're more than just another box. You're a place of people and interesting people on top of that. In conjunction with that, another one, uh, she was really creative and she said, I, when it came to year-end bonuses, I don't give cash from the company. Instead, I automatically tie it to someone's big five for life. And I think about what would they love to do, but not typically spend the money on if it was them. And so that I don't remember many of them, but I do remember one, there was a guy who was an avid skier and there was some just absolutely spectacular ski place. And so she bought him a season pass. You know, it wouldn't be something that he would have spent the money on on his own. And she's like, oh my God, his face just lit up, you know? So the more you know about the person, then the easier it is to be great at being their boss. And by the way, this extends to family too. If you've got kids, if you know the big five for life of your kid, imagine how easy it is to be the most amazing parent in the world. If you know they're passionate about music, well, 
Christmas presents, birthday presents, activities that are special that you want to do with them, tie it around these things that are core to who they are. It just makes life a lot easier. It makes you look like a rock star from a boss perspective. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's funny is you're right. Uh, we do a little, one thing, if I might add at the beginning of our, our uh, team meetings, every, um, you know, every, every meeting is uh, we ask, you know, per, just simple questions about, you know, where you want to travel most, or, you know, if you had a, a talk show, who would be your first guest, right? And my team doesn't know, but I've secretly been recording all of the answers they've given to any of these questions over time in case there's anything relevant that I can see of, you know, oh, okay, I could, I could help them out there. I could actually, you know, pl- apply something there. And so it's, it's interesting. I guess there are little ways that you can kind of keep tabs. On, yeah, it's, it's just, yeah, it shows like genuinely caring about your team, it sounds like. How special would that be? I mean, you kind of see that in like rom-com movies, right? So he or she says something on the first date or even in the first encounter and the other person remembers it. And then four months later, they surprise them with a present that's tied to that. And everybody in the audience oohs and ahs and really, oh my God, that's so romantic, right? And in a sense, that is what you're doing with your role in capturing those things. You're just looking for ways to make their life more spectacular. There's very few bosses who do that which means that people who work with you are going to treasure that opportunity. They're going to work harder for you. That's what I talk about in the book that it surprises the characters when they're having the discussion because Joe is having this conversation with someone on a plane as he's coming back to Thomas. But in essence, he says, Thomas's rule for leadership is profits are the most important thing. And the person says, what? Like that seems so contrary to his people-focused strategies. He says, no, but that's where it's all about. If you do right by the people, the profits follow. Like that is the logical flow of great leadership. And then he breaks it down piece by piece throughout the story. But I think it's totally true. Yeah, we'll have to have a, a follow-up book where Sonia can uh, can have her own, you know, the, <laughs> she starts her own companies. Um, when we talked uh, before this, you had mentioned how you have a little bit of a cold, uh, referencing I, I have a little bit of a cold too. And you talked about something that uh, is still helping you, you know, push through uh, something called uh, experiential gratitude. I mentioned you want to chat about it. Uh, what is that? Yeah, uh, experiential gratitude is something new that I've been focusing on and thinking about. Uh, so, in the the exact example in the context of yeah, so I've got a bit of a cold, and but I didn't want to cancel. Like I enjoy our conversations, and uh, I, I want to do my best to help share this information with other authors or people who are trying to be great leaders or trying to live an extraordinary life. But when we are sick, it makes us appreciate health in a way that we just don't when we're fine. And I think gratitude as a term is something that we throw around a lot, which is great because it's a very important concept to grab. That said, it's possible to put ourselves in situations where we can accelerate the power of that. And that's this concept of experiential gratitude. And so if you are feeling a bit down about your life or about your situation, then Go for 24 hours without food and see what real hunger feels like. Um, Put one of your hands, you know, just like don't use one of your hands for the day, like tuck it into your shirt so that you can only use your left hand if you're right-handed and see what it's like to be someone who only has one arm. Um, If you really want to throw yourself into a big loop, put one of those flight things that you put over your eyes when you're trying to sleep and try being blind for two hours of your life and make your way around your house. This will reframe just how amazing the human experience is in all its glory. Uh, we we have unprecedented access to resources, food, the rest of that. And sometimes, and I'll be the first one to admit to this, sometimes it's easy to get into our own little pity party and think that, no, my day sucks. Well, experiential gratitude is a way to remind ourselves on a very deep visceral level that we're very lucky. And uh, so I think it's a really powerful concept. 
Yeah, people talk about gratitude often. It's like, yeah, I get it. I need to be thankful. But actually finding a, a method to be thankful is a different thing. Um, obviously, you didn't sign up to have a cold. Uh, it happened to you. <laughs> do you do that in, in some other ways where you force yourself to have a experiential gratitude? Well, it's funny. Little things will set me in that positive direction. So, for example, since you're a traveler, you can understand this as well. I remember being in Namibia and other places and walking through a quote-unquote grocery store. And the grocery store consisted of whatever was available that week, you know? And so, oh, we've got carrots. We've got feta cheese for some random reason in Namibia, they had feta cheese. And uh, we've got um, pancake mix, like flour and pancake mix. That was it. Like that was the store shelves that week. You walk through a grocery store here in the States, like there's like 52 varieties of toothpaste. There's probably 40 varieties of syrup. And so... Anytime I walk through a store, I'm just in a perpetual state of awe that we can have all of that. Now that is based on the fact that I'd experienced the other side of it. And so I think the more in life you can expand your horizons and experience different things, it does make you by default, you know, you you have more gratitude for what you got. Yeah. Traveling is the cure all for everything. Uh, It sounds like (laughs) a walk through the grocery store sounds like an episode of MasterChef. Like, hey, you have these three ingredients. Uh, this is what you're cooking with today. Yeah, yeah. And and yet you find a way to make it work. And again, those that is their reality every single day. They've never seen a grocery store that has unlimited stuff. Yeah. Um, well, John, I can't thank you enough for coming on here, especially being alone to the weather. Uh, it really just shows how you show up. Uh, I, I, do, I really don't know how you do it. And I just thank you for coming back on to share uh, one of these other concepts with us that you just seem to come up with so many different ways of looking at life that is so interesting uh, that I love to listen to. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you. And uh, my great wish for people as it relates to their big five for life is the following. And you being a traveler can appreciate this one. Um, when I left everything behind in my early thirties and went and backpacked around the world. One of the most profound experiences I woke up in Africa and I had the feeling that I could die that day and I'd be okay with it. And the reason was because I had finally lived the life that I had dreamed of living. I was living my big five for life. I was filling my museum every single day with spectacular moments. I didn't have the terminology back then, but that's in essence, the energy that was coursing through my veins. And so for everybody who's listening, my great hope is that you will wake up one morning and say, wow, like I could die today. And I'd be okay with that. Not that you want to die, not that you're going to, but everything on top of what you've done, seen and experienced is gravy. And that comes from consciously saying, what is the life that I want to live? And then putting that on your calendar and living that life. What a great note to end on. Um, Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, we're looking forward to having you back on next time. Uh, Nice enough to come back on and talk about how you've done your marketing. You're like your own marketing powerhouse. uh, And I just can't wait to learn more about it. I got to quiz you a little bit about it last time, but I'm looking forward to talking about the marketing behind the big five for life. So, Fantastic. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for listening. I know there's many other things you could have been doing during this time. And I hope you found this episode incredibly useful for you and your journey. And if you did, Or if you have any feedback, I would love to hear that in a review on Apple. That would be fantastic or anywhere else that you are listening to this show. So thank you. And if you're the type of listener that is also an author or looking to be an author soon, feel free to email me at alex at advancedamazonads.com. That's alex at advancedamazonads.com. And I'll add you to our weekly newsletter where I send out all of the best marketing tips I've ever heard from authors that I've had on this show and many of the authors that we work with. So I look forward to hearing from you if that's something you'd find useful. And either way, I look forward to having you back for our next episode.